Patrons, welcome back to another Bunga Cast Reading Club, the penultimate reading club of the 2022 series. Uh, this is the second one on neo feudalism or techno feudalism with an emphasis on the techno. We'll come to that in just a second because we're going to start off by discussing your uh, comments from the last one. Uh, just to remind you, the last one was on the coming of neo feudalism by Joel Kotkin. Um, but firstly, hello, George. Hello, Phil. Hey. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. We're all very blue today, and and but in a good way, in a happy way. Um, we've all got these blue backgrounds on, which makes us look like floating uh, orb heads in blue space. Um, just to conjure up the it's kind pretty of good feeling. I, I think it's appropriate as we're going to be discussing artificial intelligence. Um, emphasis on the artificial, maybe not so much the intelligence, but anyway, that's to be seen. Um. On the last reading club, uh, which came out on the 4th of November, uh, a couple of comments. Firstly, Eli says, I just want you guys to know I comment on your podcast obsessively because every time I listen to a normie politics podcast like Ezra Klein, they're completely insufferably liberal, anti-economistic, anti-materialist. Thank you. Um, that's nice to that's nice to hear, at least in contrast to the other crap. Um, re, res, with respect to uh, the question of uh, neo-feudalism, if we're going to narrow from PMC to clerisy, then we have to be more critical of their objective role. They, meaning the clerisy, mostly don't manufacture consent or ideology de novo. They manufacture resignation. They protect the nonprofit industrial complex, that is academia, NGOs, money-losing media, etc., from mass entry. Whether they're woke or based about it doesn't really matter as long as normies can't get involved and steer organizations towards mass action. Um, I like. I kind of like that mass manufacturing resignation. Yeah, I don't think that fully captures it, though. <clears throat> it's not just about uh, exclu- exclusion or um, kind of managing boundaries. I think there is also a, a kind of uh, an ideological role of maybe not manufacturing resignation, but manufacturing dissent. So like uh, an oppositional kind of seemingly oppositional posture in relation mm. to the status quo that actually reinforces it. Um, but I do, yeah, it's not a bad phrase at all. Um, manufacturing resignation. I think that's a good point, George. I mean, you think about a lot of kind of whatever green politics, which presents itself as oppositional, but isn't really. And it kind of narrows the bounds of what kind of the legitimate opposition might be. And in that regard, um, it does manufacture consent by manufacturing dissent. Yeah, I think that's quite good. Um, Phil, any comment on that? No, you're shaking your head. Okay. Um, well, you'll have your chance to speak. Um, Plecha Zunga says, uh, feudalism as a political form is partially the result of the difficulty of projecting force over a large geographical area, i.e. the state consists of the capital city and its outlying hinterlands, but regional elites continue to hold real power because you just don't have the technology to dominate them completely. Yeah, and I think, just as an aside, I think it's not just a question of technology. Um, what we're seeing is a similar problem when it comes to the internet today. You have big tech and big finance who have access to extremely powerful computers, the proximity to which equals money, power, and influence in our world. To the extent that the state is currently losing an arms race of control over these big con- big computers, server farms, etc., you get feudal-like formations, 
regional tech duchies, neo-Venetian finance powers of New York and London, who have certain formal relationships or intertwinings with real estate, with the real state. Uh, it, is it possible to imagine the state could catch up and re-dominate these regional elites in the new space of internet virtual economy? Uh, Eli just replies to that, saying, if the state started locking down intellectual property produced in universities instead of giving it away, yes, a lot of tech R&D is basically parasitical on public funding. Phil? I'm not sure. Sorry to jump in there. I'm not sure that um, <clears throat> intellectual property produced in universities is is given away, though. I think the publishing industry would would have something to um, to say about that if that were the case. Um, I know that the journal publishers are not particularly keen on uh, information wanting to be free. But, but that's um, not yeah, that's sorry, not the only sure. output, though, I think, right? Like the idea is that there's lots more technology, which is, you know, just speaking specifically of technology that is um, developed in universities, which is then, um, you know, made made uh made profitable in private companies um and the universities don't make money off of that right so all the spin-offs that are made i mean some you know universities do have loads of like kind of spin-off departments directly um you know made for this but a lot of it doesn't get kind of captured then later on yeah no i think so we we talked a little bit about this when we discussed um evgeny morozov's article in episode 305 <clears throat> this like is there a like a misunderstanding of the role of the state in um, discussions of techno feudalism and you know the, the extent to which it underwrites a lot of I think as um, as Eli says a lot of kind of R and D is really underwritten um, by the state or it's parasitical on on public funding because <clears throat> why not why why not uh, get um, engage in a process of you know privatizing some of these these public gains rather than taking the risk to engage in that R&D yourself. And it's not just and it's not just that, right? Because I mean it it's the internet it's the enmeshing with the security state, Silicon Valley and the security state and the way that whole thing works. So I I mean I don't know about the claim that that you know the internet is particularly feudal today. I mean that might have been the case before, but especially with escalating geopolitical conflict, that would, you know, that China has its own kind of sealed off internet and that seems to be especially with increasing kind of cyber warfare between regional blocks, as does Russia, um, be between these regional blocks will lead to increasing kind of state control or, well, or that's kind why, of fencing off yeah, of the internet. That's why I wonder if um, Eli's kind of response perhaps um, misses the thrust of Pledger Zunga's um, comment, which seems to me it's less about the kind of, you know, the... Um, the structure of R&D funding and um, public-private subsidies and what have you to... Um, to internet companies so much as um, questions of private versus public control. And I suppose in addition to the geopolitical fragmentation of the internet, which is, um, you know, something that gets spattered about quite a bit now, uh, there's also the just the sheer level of political coordination, I think, between um, not only kind of the deep state, it seems to me, but also the upper echelons of political parties. I mean, some of the stuff that came out in the backwash of Musk's takeover of Twitter, for instance, um, is pretty striking, right? I mean, um, you know, leaked comments about how determined the White House was to contain the backwash of um, of losing, you know, effectively losing uh, the control or that they previously had of Twitter. Um, personal comments, you know, by um, Joe Biden himself. And so, you know, it seems to me that level of coordination is um, political kind of control and coordination, which isn't state 
isn't state heavy handedness, but kind of spontaneous affinity and interconnection. And a lot of this is the argument that Thomas Fatsy has made. A lot of the groundwork for that was institutionalized and formalized in the course of the lockdown, where um, many Internet companies were very happy to um, participate in, you know, kind of policing information, public information, publicly available information about the spread of and origins of the pandemic and, um, you know, uh, the rollout of vaccines and what have you. So, I'm, you know, that doesn't speak to me to the kind of um, fragmentation that Pletcher Zunger indicates. It seems instead to me to speak to, um, you know, large monopolistic structures that are very closely intertwined if not with the entirety of the state, then at least with um, fragments, you know, important kind of fragments of the state in, in the West, not to mention mm -hmm. in China and in Russia as well. Yeah. So just on this, on Musk and Twitter, in, in this kind of context, is 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 Elon Musk the the kind of the Cromwell figure, like attacking the the old um, kind of accumulated powers of the uh, of the feudal Twitter <laughs> um, court? I don't know. Does this make sense? That is a fucking slander on the great Lord Protector George. And as I a gammon, as a um, gammon, Elon Musk I would was have the great Lord Protector. He's not. That's the point. So, as a gammon, you know, I'd expect you to show more fucking respect for the leader of our, for the dead, uh, unfortunately, and distant leader of our republic. <laughs> I mean, if he wasn't dead by this point, he would be a little bit advanced <laughs> in age, potentially. Anyway um let's get let's get cracking on uh, the main matter at hand which is the question of artificial intelligence so i'll hand over to george yeah so <clears throat> as um you know as you said already alex continuing the discussion of techno feudalism and following on from last month's reading club which was joel Kotkin's the coming of neo-feudalism a warning to the global middle class um and actually, I also mentioned this in the questions. We we had a discussion on some of these issues on episode 305, a free episode available to all, um, Techno Feudal Unreason, where we discussed Evgeny Morozov's essay in the New Left Review on Feudalism. So last month we talked about, yeah, obviously feudalism, um, class structure, ideology, um, geography. When we discussed Kotkin, we talked about exploitation, expropriation, accumulation, primitive and otherwise. I don't know what the opposite of primitive accumulation is is it like standard or standard accumulation or just accumulation normal accumulation i don't know we didn't just we didn't discuss that just, just accumulation. accumulation as in justice so like i mean that's well, kind of it, true, well i right? guess that is the point it is just accumulation because it's all done by the rules rather than yeah. through violence oh my god you nerds stop <laughs> fair exchange is no robbery um as they say so if you want to understand that that comment in its context go back to uh, last month if you haven't listened to it um but looking to the future uh, or to the present not the past uh this month we're more moving part two or three on techno, techno feudalism with um and i will probably mispronounce at least one of these people's names i apologize in advance uh nick dyer with withford atla mikola koisen koisen i don't know k-j-o-s-e-n uh, and James Steinhoff's Inhuman Power, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Capitalism, which was published by Pluto in 2019. <clears throat> so this was recommended by a listener at the start of the year as something that we should engage with because we were looking at, we wanted to look specifically at the role of technology within the techno um, feudalist thesis and these discussions. Um, 
And so, yeah, hopefully today cover some things around the future of work, artificial intelligence, and more widely, the role of technology in the future of capitalism. So just to kind of give this a um, <clears throat> uh, a, a present, a, a twist on the, the present day, um, or for the present day, it was announced today that San Francisco may allow the police to deploy robots that kill people. So we're, we're getting to the um, that kind of Skynet um, Terminator situation, or maybe this is more RoboCop, but we're definitely getting, um, you know, it's, it's, shit's becoming real now. If you go to, if, if you live in San Francisco, at least um, you could have a um, police robot that is able to deploy lethal uh, force. So what, what do you guys make of, of, of this? Uh, is this um, a great step forward in the political community's ability to um, uh, implement the rules that it's, that have been chosen by all? Or is it um, a little bit more dystopian? Uh, I mean, that? here's here's one where I'm sympathetic to the defund the police types. Um, I think actually, you know, here, uh, as we'll come on to discuss, a lot of the question of AI revolves around how imminent you think it is, how possible uh, you, you think a lot of the deployment of more sophisticated AI, AI is, and secondly, whether you think it's good or bad. And here's one case where I think it's probably relatively soon and very bad. And the reason for that, in part is because it doesn't uh, rely on um, turning a profit effectively, right? So you have um, elements, arms of the security state, whether it's at the kind of federal level or state level or wherever else, um, able to basically, you know, pay for robots, right? Killer robots. Now, that doesn't – I don't know how, the degree to which artificial intelligence is actually involved in those, but in any case, it seems like the 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 – bit about AI and robotics, which is the scariest and the the kind of the the element which will be implemented soonest, at least amongst the the kind of scary parts of it. Right. And I like, yeah, it, it, it does where, it does frighten me. So where I demure from what Alex said is the I think the the defund the police argument actually leans into the AI killer robot argument, right? In the sense that obviously um, the two things kind of dovetail, they intersect um, because obviously, you know, the idea is, oh, we have this um, kind of problematic police force that refuses to implement the gender sensitivity and racial awareness training that we send them to. And therefore it'll be much easier if we can just kind of program, you know, robots to do this. Um, and so I think there is like um, the arguments for deferring to AI, you know, um, I think those kinds of arguments will dovetail very well with the um, critiques, some of which are in this in the book, in fact, about the, you know, kind of the inevitably gendered and racialized and minoritized um, patriarchal structures of global capitalism, whatever, have, whatever have you, that those will, in fact, be arguments for strengthening the killer robot dynamic. And AI comes into it in the sense as to how far you can rely on these um on these machines to act autonomously of human operators, right? So that is where the element of AI comes into the killer robot question. And it's something which is, um, you know, kind of being debated and developed um, even as we speak. Yeah, no, I just wanted to to, to throw that in there to, to make it live and to make it um, relevant because this actually was was um, announced today. But I guess for the, for the time being, at least, um, there's no plans to introduce um, robot podcasters. I mean, you might argue would you notice but um, and i would be stay. an abomination and should be resisted yeah. by all communists and socialists everywhere it I should be a major more. part of socialist strategy 
to make sure that robot podcasting is strongly fucking resisted. And I hope yeah, that our listeners sh- will agree with this. Shout, shout out to a friend of the podcast who's, uh, whose podcast is called a fully automated podcast. So, you know, he <laughs> starting a but, trend but there. Then- but he's not actually a robot himself as far he isn't, as um, he isn't no but as he's, far as, he's giving as as ideological he's giving ideological sustenance to to that idea so you know <laughs> um, uh, yeah okay so um yeah just just to kick things off then i guess on on this um this book which is is quite as I, you know said wide ranging engages a lot of marxist um theory but i think that you know the very first thing that they start with is that contemporary capitalism is is possessed by this AI, artificial intelligence question, um, why is this the case? Why is it that this seems to be one of the very few areas um, where capitalists still seem to have some sort of ambition for technological progress, for for thinking of the future, um, for development? I mean, I guess it's because it gets down to the very nucleus of what capitalism is and its internal, uh, its internal competitive engine, which is cutting costs. And I think it touches both on a question of um, just purely accumulation as well as the more, I guess, political question of of um, legitimation, if we want to put it that way, which is basically to say that it allows you, you know, getting rid of human laborers, get, it might be, you know, kind of profitable for you, but it also um, is politically useful in terms of getting rid of a pesky element. So I think it gets very down to the to the to the nub of it. Whereas for Western capital, especially highly financialized Western capital, building out railways or whatever um, isn't particularly um, appealing because it it doesn't it doesn't um, it would need someone to act in the interest of capital in general to say actually let's build out whole new forms of infrastructure or housing or whatever, um, which might lead to further growth. But that's not in the interest of the leading fractions of capital, whereas something like uh, AI is. Yeah, I guess it's one one thing where where there's a question, is there a dialectic whereby if you were to remove too much labor, if you were to automate too much of it and replace it with with AI of various sorts, and we'll get into the differences between AI, ro- robotics, and various other sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, does, does this actually strengthen oppositional forces to the extent that you know, you then have a lot of people who are um, displeased that their labor has been has been replaced in in this way. But I mean, I think the you know the, the authors of the book at least characterize capitalism today as, in their their words, actually existing AI capitalism. So they're clearly staking a position on all of this. Their their idea being that there's you know the phase we're in today is one of experimental and uneven adoption of AI technologies. A lot of the analysis a lot of the discussion is you know looking into the future and as you said before alex there's a question of how is one of the questions but <clears throat> i guess uh you 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 kind of approach pretty quickly is how soon in the future are we really talking about here is this just around the corner or is it around a corner that's slightly um further away as it were so <clears throat> i guess just to, before we kind of get into some of the more substantive questions there is a few terms and definitions and ground clearing and all that sort of thing that needs to be done um and the so the authors of the book and i will continue to say authors of the book rather than uh, mispronounce all their names again um so they give a definition of ai that expands on a pithy one that they note which is the study of how to make computers do things at which at the moment people are better which is you know short short one that you can take away listener but the longer definition they give is as follows 
The essence of AI, indeed the essence of intelligence, is the ability to make appropriate generalizations in a timely fashion based on limited data. The broader the domain of application, the quicker conclusions are drawn with minimal information, the more intelligent the behavior. They then distinguish between three different <clears throat> basic sorts of um, AI. So the, the first one being artificial intelligence or what they call narrow AI, and that's got three different parts. Don't worry, this is it sounds like a list, but I'll, I'll hopefully um, kind of come back to this one and explain what those three are. But you've got narrow AI, artificial general intelligence, and artificial superintelligence. So artificial um, <clears throat> uh, general intelligence or AGI, artificial superintelligence, ASI, those are um, pretty particularly read the book pretty self-explanatory but what are the different sorts of narrow ai they have the good old-fashioned ai machine learning and something which they call situated embodied dynamical framework so the way that they lay this out is that good old-fashioned ai this is the oldest um kind of uh approach to ai which you know is um aims to kind of i guess replace some sorts of um uh inferences or some sort of logical reasoning that the human beings display machine learning this is something which i think is probably um pretty sort of familiar to to all of us it's this um i guess the, in the age of big data it's essentially machines running these really um large-scale repeated calculations and looking for correlations of various sorts and then starting to infer from this on on new data sets so that's a um, another sort of that narrow ai and then SED, um, situational, uh, situated embodied and embodied and dynamic framework, um, and this is a kind of new AI, which is uh, a bit more, I think, in in their account at least, the, the edges are a bit fuzzier. It's qualitatively different to this good old fashioned AI, this kind of narrow one, and it sort of starts to um, um, bring in some more complex kind of qualitative, kind of fuzzier um, calculations rather than that kind of narrow um logical reasoning or inferences from big sets of data so hopefully not too much of a blizzard of terms and letters there um but thought it was, it was would be useful to go through this a little bit for listeners is there anything that i've missed there before we crack on with some of the bigger questions uh nothing specific but i would um i just kind of i would say i think I think it opens up really well. I mean, there's some, I've got issues uh, with the kind of overall argument we'll come to in the course of the discussion, but I did just want to say how much, um, how impressed I was with um, how effectively they summarize some of these tropes and they make digestible some otherwise kind of, you know, you hear lots about AI kind of uh, in the business press um, and, you know, more kind of mediocre renditions in other media. And so I thought it was a very, you know, from the political and social scientific viewpoint, I thought it was a very effective summary of the different outlooks and trends. Um, and all of that was really impressive. The only thing I'd say, which um, would, you know, kind of by way of opening up our discussion, I suppose, which they don't mention, and hopefully without preempting it, is um, how much the whole era is founded on the or exists in the context of cheap money um, and they open up with the tale of kind of a one of these kind of heroic silicon valley entrepreneurs um desperately looking for funding for his venture capital project in ai um and that you know this book is a couple of years old now and so it's only now that the era of cheap money is kind of receding into the past that it becomes more visible um but you know that's i think a question is how far ai 
is an artifact of um, the era of cheap money, at least as far as we know AI at the moment. And I thought some of the lines they have are brilliant, like this point about um, how common it is now that AI plus UBI has become the formula for techno progressive social democratic thought. They have some, you know, some genuinely barbed mm, and effective yeah. insights, I thought. And that AI plus UBI is true. Like it genuinely is kind of um, very dominant among a certain strain of kind of left progressivism as um, a solution to so many of our problems. And not just, not just left progressivism. I think that's the important point. No, indeed. And I mean, they, you know, they do talk about kind of the, um, you know, the, uh, how ABI, UBI, sorry, how UBI kind of breaks down politically and how it's, um, you know, how enamored certain strains of some of the creepier kind of more oligarchic libertarian right, how enamored they are of UBI as well. Yeah, it's the new kind of, um electric electrification and soviets kind of um um vibe but just on this um cheap money point is is your contention then that this um this is going to kind of look quite dated this is going to be another future that's been you know been taken from us that we had at least this this dream for a short period of time of of ai due to cheap money and now there's no more cheap money there's no more dreams or nightmares of ai no, so I wouldn't go that far. I think, I mean, AI will continue to, um, you know, I think they will continue to make progress in AI and to embed it in the functioning of various kind of aspects of the economy. But I, I, without being able to predict any concrete outcome, I suspect there will be an effect. It might take the kind of the shine off it for the moment, um, but I, it might kind of put AI, make it less prominent. I mean, you know, you think like at the moment, everyone's kind of fixated with blockchain stuff as a result of the collapse of FTX rather than AI, right? So I think it might just kind of make it less prominent as uh, cheap money recedes. There'll be less kind of money slushing around yeah. for crazy venture capital startups, but that doesn't mean it'll go away. I think it'll be there kind of, you know, they'll be working assiduously in the background to continue to embed it in the way in which financial markets work, to continue to kind of use it as part of um, the rollout of the, you know, the bio state access, Google wants access to NHS medical data, this kind of thing. So I think that kind of stuff will continue. But the um, perhaps the more kind of utopian slash dystopian visions um, the froth will become less prominent as there's less money in slushing around in Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, well, well put. Alex, anything on this? So just, um, I did actually say earlier that I would say what a robot was as well, which I, I neglected to do. But um, yeah, the I think this is the standard definition is that it's an artificial device that firstly, it can sense its environment and act on that environment. Secondly, that it's embodied, so that intelligence has a has a kind of um, uh, a, a container, which you might say AI or AGI or ASI. Like, there's a question as to whether these have to be embodied. And thirdly, um, it can autonomously, i.e., without human direction, carry out useful work. So it's got sense, it's got a body, and it can do some work. So that's a that's a robot uh, for you. I'm not sure how useful that will um, will will be for your for your weekend listener, but um, Good, good to know, perhaps. Okay, so AI and, you know, the, the political aspects of of this. So the, the approach of the book is definitely, and they, you know, um, lay this out in very much in the Marxist tradition and they draw on a lot of Marx. Um, and so the sort of starting point that they have, I think, theoretically, is that under capitalism, and this is, a, you know, 
an, an old an old idea things assume the appearance of human powers while people are treated as things so ai in their opinion is the concrete manifestation of this it's this this embodiment of the abstraction um by which things assume human powers um and so they follow this by sort of and i think this is an important thing that they draw out throughout the, the whole book they see ai as embodying the contradictory potential of capitalism so on the one hand uh free humanity from the exploitation of labor um for the purposes of, of capital accumulation but on the other hand potentially offers capital freedom um to freedom from humanity that is as a biological barrier um, to accumulation so what do we make of this this idea that ai could sit you know i think it's often thought ai can liberate um humanity from the demands of labor but what do you guys what did you guys make of this the possibility that they raise that ai could liberate capital from labor well it's always been the dream i mean uh... I think, yeah, it's what's the strength, I think, of the book is that they very firmly see all the discussion and um, use of AI very much in the that kind of trajectory, that it's not something to do with a transformation in computing power or, um, you know, the use of neural networks or whatever, but given a certain context of social relations, it is, in fact, just a reiteration of the of the very nature of capital. Right as um, as an automated process that seeks to dispense um, that seeks to dispense with human labor, but can never do so. Um, and so that's I think they they maybe you know the the gloss is perhaps missing um, in this because I think what they or the element that they might miss is that the to a certain degree the fact that capital can't dispense with that it requires human labor to valorize itself. Um, is a critique of capital, right? That it keeps on recreating um, exploitative labor conditions despite the way in which it pushes technology forward. And they develop this kind of, um, you know, in the book by talking about how there'll always be the, um, you know, the extension of crude and primitive forms of labor in tandem with the development of um, super technological kind of breakthroughs. And so I thought it was very effective. Um, you know the the dis, but the in a way the dystopian idea of um, the Skynet kind of dystopian vision is it's that kind of fantasy of capital of which is fully released from any integration or um, dependence on human labor, but that it can't actually do that. You know and that's part of Marx's critique that capital requires human labor in order to exist by definition. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's worth stressing because it also, if Marx is right, then it's also a check, you know, kind of it um, indicates that there's a barrier to some of the more far flung utopian and dystopian yeah. imagine, imagination of what AI could become or do. Yeah, I think yeah. it um, it's it's interesting to, to counterpose the kind of Skynet dystopia or the, the Matrix dystopia to the sort of monsters or fears that you know, people in the 19th century had. And Marx obviously, or not obviously, but famously says that capital is like a vampire. And this, you know, vampires kind of need humans, right? They need them continually. Like, is the vampire's dream to get rid of all the humans? No, the humans are the um, are the food of the vampire, but also it's a bit more complex and and they're a bit more intertwined than that, If you know, in many different ways. But <clears throat> there's a clearly 
at least that kind of fantasy or that fear still recognizes that objective constraint. Sorry, Alex, I think you were well, gonna, no, you I mean, it, it just this this reading um, this section of the book did remind me of the argument advanced by Andreas Malm about this capitalism switch to steam power away from water power that um, in early industrialization, I mean, kind of 17th, early 18th century uh, in Britain, that, um, you know, plants in factories had to be based close to water, right, to, to, to make use of the mill. And they had to then depend on other capitalists to share uh, share that out, to be dependent on place. And, you know, you had to site your factory in a specific place next to near water where villages were and so on and that um you know the switch to coal and therefore steam power um, was also was a way of kind of emancipate capitalism emancipating capital excuse me for capital to emancipate itself from from kind of people and place so there's there's a if you follow that logic through and if you if you take that theory as to be true um there is a, a kind of long-standing attempt by capital to emancipate itself from from humanity to a certain extent, um, which I which I found I found kind of compelling in, in their um, in the kind of thrust of the argument presented in the book to say that AI and capitalism are somehow um, AI is the um, you know the kind of realization of capitalism somehow there's a, there's this telos towards artificial intelligence right from the beginning. I think they cite either Mackenzie Wark or actually Nick Land in, in saying something like this, that there's a, a teleological identity between artificial intelligence and capital. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it is Nick Land. I mean, it's a, um, yeah, I th well, we, we can come back to, to, to discuss this and I think whether it's, um, whether it's compatible with, with the way Marx understood capitalism, but obviously that's a secondary question as to whether it's right or not anyway. But for listeners who haven't um, read the book, I wanted, you know, apologies, but I wanted to lay out some of the, I guess, central claims and some of the what they see the political stakes in this discussion as, because um, I think we've, you know, got some of the the concepts in place now. So the, one of the central claims that they that they make is as follows: at the end of the second decade, well, now the beginning of the third, so end of the second decade of the twenty first century, AI development is dominated dominated by capital, led by some of the world's most powerful oligarchs capitalistic corporations enabled by and assisting nation states seeking instruments of economic competition in the world market and weapons for their military and security forces ml machine learning advanced for robotic predictive analytics and other fourth industrial revolution technologies a strengthening capital vis-a-vis -vis labor and elite sections of labor relative to others and so are hence likely to increase inequality along lines of class stratification that are also lines of gender and race so what they see or one of the things that they take aim at, the authors of, the, of this book, is that expectation that widespread AI adoption would automatically lead to the end of capitalism. They see this as misplaced. And instead, as we've already touched on, they see that it could open the way to a capitalism that continues without humans. So it's a much it's much more open. It's not a um, a straightforward, you know, tech will save us position. And specifically, they see two left perspectives, which they try to critique in here, uh, in this book, um, on the impact of AI on capitalism, which they term minimalist and maximalist. So the minimalist one, this is the idea, this isn't happening. Um, I Basically, predictions of increasing AI powers and widespread adoption are hugely exaggerated. And they're basically investment attracting hype and worker intimidating bluster. And they say that people who tend to take this minimalist position um, can point to like past predictions of jobless futures which haven't come to um, come to pass 
And basically this conclusion of this minimalist position um, is that there are no real immediate major implications of AI for socialist or communist struggles. Basically, it doesn't matter. The maximalist position, <laughs> unsurprisingly, takes the opposite um, view and says, you know, this is really happening. Um, so let's speed it up. And this is, you know, to listeners will will recognize um, this, I hope, in some of the previous discussions we've had. Um, and it's basically this kind of left accelerationist or post-capitalist view of AI. So fully automated luxury communism, uh, xenofeminism, etc. The idea here is for this maximalist position is that you kind of have a transition to socialism by reducing or eliminating the need to work and supplying a universe, universal basic income. So... Did you find this distinction useful, guys? I mean, is this kind of a, is it too crude or is it actually a good way to, to kind of um, divide left approaches to, to AI? They're maximalist. They think this is really happening. Let's speed it up. They're minimalist. They think this this isn't really happening. There's no, nothing really, nothing to see here. Um, move on. Yeah, it, it kind of did provoke me a little bit because I I was a young accelerationist, and I think there was a, certainly a, a certain intellectual moment in the early 2010s um, around. You should write that up. They would make a great kind of pod, podca uh, <laughs> yeah. podcast like um, piece. You know, I used to be a young accelerationist. Yeah. Or um, reflections slowed, of a young accelerationist. Exactly. I slowed yeah. down. Yeah. I slowed down <laughs> in my old age. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, well, yeah, I, but I, I do think there was a certain intellectual moment and they refer to, you know, people like Aaron Bastani and uh, Cernicek and Williams and so on. And it, I mean, I remember reading those books and having those discussions and finding that appealing because it was something that sought to break with what Cernicek and Williams call folk politics, but the kind of um, effectively... Uh, the abandonment of any kind of Promethean politics by the left, and that this sought to present an optimistic uh, pro-technology, pro-growth vision um, of the future. And, it, you know, I think that's kind of died off in, in part because I, what um, propelled that sort of politics was a frustration with this kind of um, impasse and deadening kind of vibe of that period still where you didn't have yet the turbulence that you have today. Um, whereas, you know, in today's context, the kind of the politics comes to you. So you don't need to kind of conjure it up through uh, kind of uh, hyperactive technological imagination. Um, and uh, I, I actually what provoked me about their definition was precisely that today I would default, I think, to that minimalist position like ah, AI is a long way off. Um, you know, we don't need to be worried. All these claims about technological unemployment are probably overstated and at any rate not that uh, not happening that soon um and then and i and i would generally subscribe to the darren benanov's position where he argues that it's basically capitalist stagnation which is driving the creation of large surplus populations more than technological mm -hmm. unemployment per se but you know this, so provoked, uh... this did provoke me to think a little bit more deeply about do i want to be into that min do that want to be in that minimalist camp i don't know so the it's you know I mean we've chatted a bit about this before I suppose it's worth revisiting in response to your question George but the you know the peak of that kind of um, luxury communism phase that seemed to me to peak and crash it was the frothy it was the frothy kind of um, well or the froth of the peak wave of Corbynism it seems to me and left populism and then it kind of crashes um, you know in the with the defeat of all of that in 2019 no i and think it, it predates it, 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 it predates it significantly i didn't say I, it pre, I didn't say i didn't say that it uh that it started then i said that it peaked 
right? So it crashes. No, no, I think it peaked before then. I I think it it turns, it becomes, um, you know, much more focused on kind of traditional social democratic demands with Corbynism and left populism. And that a lot of the more, you know, um, kind of futurist stuff um, rather predated that Maybe. when there wasn't I mean, any concrete I, politics I remember to get involved it was, in. You know, it was very much, I mean, Aaron Bastani was propelling that argument um, between Corbyn's election as leader and the um, election of 2019 when Corbynism crashed. I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, that was, you know, that was the what it seemed to me from how it seemed to me from um, within British politics. What I wanted to say was, though, beyond that is, it's not clear to me how um, precisely where the kind of this brief um, this brief wave of left Prometheanism, which, as Alex says, you know, I was quite kind of uh, taken aback with and quite sympathetic to and surprised by. It. It's not clear to me where it came from, um, but it seems to me that it was ultimately quite superficial, right? Because it seems to have largely dissipated, and the left has kind of flipped back to um, doom. You know, particularly its attachment to eco doom and eco catastrophe, and um, the imminent kind of climate crisis, the emphasis on all the um, you know flooding and um, uh, you know kind of uh, wildfires and what have you, and so the Prometheanism, you know, whatever caused it, it seems to me it was quite superficial, and so I read it more as um, it you know I can't help or at least read it more as being something which is tied to the fortunes of left populism more than anything autonomous so once left populism kind of failed um or wasn't going to kind of crash into power uh the prometheanism faded away and you know it's kind of the left has retreated back to its um kind of gloomy prognoses of ecological collapse and the best that we can hope for is survival mm -hmm. rather than actually implementing a kind of a program of radical social transformation so i think that's um you know that's part of it the problem, I think, with the framing of minimalist and maximalist, though, right, is that it forces you, when it's framed in that way, it forces, you know, kind of any um, rational kind of or outside observer to want to kind of find some moderate position in the middle. And so I think whenever you frame something in maximalist or minimalist terms, it kind of forces everyone into the middle, effectively. So I wonder if it's better to kind of think about how, you know, you know, what the presuppositions are that are shared between the maximalists and the minimalists more than kind of looking for the point that you want to adopt on on this kind of you know um artificially constructed spectrum yeah no i think i think there's definitely something to that to that first point that you made phil that the maybe it's it's dated already to the extent that this book was probably written in like 2017 2018 if it was published in 2019 and so now you have kind of minimalist maximalist that little you know <clears throat> a little less popular than it was before previously and now you have catastrophist is is a bit more um present in any discussion of the left i think the the doom the doom uh, ladenness needs to be needs to be remarked on um that at least there was i don't i don't I, you know the term promethean gets thrown around a lot but at least it was optimistic like fully automated luxury communism was a moment of of um you know maybe utopianism but at least there was some uh some kind of underlying <clears throat> kind of uh hope or or good vibes there um let me uh, let me okay. posit let me posit uh, what they share, right? So I said, you know, perhaps a different way is to think rather than to find your way on, you know, to identify where you sit on the spectrum between minimum and maximum, you know, uh, I think one thing they do share is a lack of agency, 
right? So particularly with the fully automated luxury communism, the whole point of that was it's purely technology, right? So the argument was, you know, in the same way that the um, the early, the kind of proto, proto-Protestants in medieval Europe didn't have access to a printing press, and that was why Lollardy um, failed where Martin Luther succeeded was because Martin Luther had a printing press. And they, you know, I remember Aaron Bastani makes the same case. The reason communism couldn't work in the 20th century wasn't because of a political failure. We don't need to, you know, investigate all the kind of dredge up, all the kind of um, dig through the ruins of Trotskyism and Maoism and Stalinism and all that, because it was like Lollardy, right? They didn't have the technology, whereas now with um, biogenetics, with AI, with um, all these new technological breakthroughs, we're in a position to do what they were incapable of doing. Um, and this, you know, I mean, this wasn't just a kind of a logical fallacy, but the, you know, the um, it figured in the 2019 election, because the um, and I hear I hope all listeners and particularly George will appreciate what I'm about to do in bringing this conversation around, because in the 2019 election, they promised That's like everything. They promised broadband communism for the masses. Right. Enormous public spending and everything else. But they refused to respect the vote of the 2016 referendum. So they deliberately eschewed agency. And to that degree, I think the fully automated luxury communism and the more modest kind of program that was offered in the 2019 Labour platform were of a piece, right, in that they simply entirely issued questions of agency. And I think the minimalists do that, too. Right. Or in as much in as, much as they kind of dismiss, um, you know, they dismiss AI, they're still kind of stuck with the problem that there is no um, political way to break through the impasse. So maybe, uh, you know, I'd suggest or hazard that maybe what the minimalists and the maximalists share is probably a similar skepticism towards agency, political agency. I mean, I'm 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 always willing <laughs> if I'm chairing or hosting it to allow the discussions to come back to, to Brexit. That's absolutely fine by me. But I don't think revisit the trauma. Quite... Always, you know, that's that's a problem. <laughs> you need to, you need to overcome mean... that. Well, I don't think it is quite so plausible what you were saying um, with respect to minimalism um, as as with respect to maximalism, because yeah. maximalism is like is like, yeah, this is this is happening. Let's speed it up. We, we you know, this is a kind of we don't need to do anything other than just speed up things which are already happening. Well, no, we don't need to do the... anything, but we will we the, the, the doing will come in the future. Right. So we're going to yeah. accelerate, force the contradictions, and then we will have all this stuff to take over in the process of revolution and and then communism. Um, so it, it kind of to, to a certain extent, it does postpone agency, if not kind of writes it out entirely. Um, but sorry, carry on, because I, I do agree with what you're getting. Yeah. At. But then but then with the minimalist, it's like this doesn't solve like this doesn't if the if the fundamental minimalist like gambit is this doesn't really change anything like the fundamentally the political stakes aren't 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 qualitatively altered it's still the same you know that's that old kind of engels idea that we've got the technology for communism already it's a political problem i think to the extent that that it's phased it's posed and this is, might be a specific sort of of um gammonista minimalism which you know that's that's fine if that's what it is but like yeah the, the minimalist position is this is secondary or the or not even the secondary just that the political is one thing and the technological yeah, is another that that's absolutely right george it, it is basically the game remains the same and it, it, i think what what is shown what 
what sheds light on that um, point um, and what what brings it into contrast is the author's own attempt to um, not just do a Marxist critique of AI, but to do an AI critique of Marxism. And their AI critique of Marxism precisely suggests that there is a qualitative change with um, not with AI as it currently exists, but as it might come to exist, and that that does change the game. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily write out agency, political agency from the story, and we can come on to discuss whether they do or don't. But the issue there is more just that the the the, co- the political coordinates become radically, not even political coordinates, but the social coordinates become altered by um, kind of mm. mass uptake of artificial intelligence. Um, and and so that's what the min- the middle the minimalist position recoils from that and says no it doesn't change anything what you know the basic what was argued in capital remains the same you know 150 years on um, yeah sorry it just just made me think because you know just as you were discussing that that in some ways one of the central questions of this AI like of this book of AI or that's maybe not that we would say is missing is that question of agency and this is this is when we were discussing conspiracy theory i think timothy melly's book that came out really clearly that they're they're sort i don't want to you know push it too far and say that they're the same but there must then there are some similarities um between like the ai sort of vision of the future and what that says about agency and the current problems with it and um conspiracy theorizing as well but we can go actually we can, can I let me just up. add something onto yeah. that because I do think there is some there is I guess an agency panic to take up the Melly um argument with regard to the fears of AI right that we're going to be that we're going to be completely written out of the story of of history and I was going to say human history but it's precisely not it's of, of inhuman history of um probably not even history anymore but of just of the future um and I think that that is something that's quite real, but also, you know, to the extent that that might be a real possibility, I think we magnified in our fears of it because it that is more a reflection of our lack of political agency more than it is of the fact that we're going to be all made completely redundant, useless populations and so on. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's yeah, nicely put. It, it's always the case, isn't it, right? The, the fears of the projections of the, the problems at the, at the moment, you know, you doesn't tell you about the future it tells you about the present always yeah. these kind of um uh, approaches but anyway there's there's quite a few more things to to discuss um one of which is and we won't go into it in too much detail here but they do touch on the reconfiguration debate um and one of the questions which comes out of this um is basically and this is you know crude summary is whether the more developed technology becomes the easier it will be to produce communism so we previously discussed um some issues around this when we discussed jasper burns work as well as wolfgang strake's piece in the new left review engels second theory technology warfare and the growth of the state and strake takes quite a i guess a pessimistic view on this or he's he you know partly through reading of engels he comes to this conclusion that essentially technology in recent decades has disproportionately advanced in the fields of information management useful for surveillance and in warfare control of populations so i guess the question here is does the development of technology make communism easier or more difficult to produce or does it depend i guess we kind of touched on some of these questions already but just to to put a finer point on it i thought this part of the discussion was you know it was actually how should I say? I mean, it was uh, 
genuinely kind of honest and open i thought um and i thought you know the points i mean this was i'm not familiar with the discussion outside of um you know the way they've rendered it about the fact that um to some degree you know i accept the idea made by one side in the debate that the technology of capitalism that any kind of future society would inherit would inevitably be stamped by capitalism so it's not just kind of you know neutral machinery where you just change the person who's pulling the levers and pushing the buttons, but that it is itself kind of a whole, um, you know, it's structured in all sorts of ways that reflect the society in which it emerged. So it's not neutral. I accept that. On the other hand, you know, it seems to me that there's also, you know, the idea that this necessitates some kind of fragmented insurrectionary kind of, um, I don't know, anarcho-syndicalist response also seems to me to be misplaced. And the, to that extent, the debate, at least as it's rendered by the authors here, seems to me to be, again, kind of missing the sense of um, it's ultimately a political question, not a technological one. You know, and I don't know that it's so important how far technology will shape these kinds of issues, because the most prominent and important questions are those of, um, you know, politics, which is to say state power, um, who runs, you know, who isn't, who's in charge and how do they rule and in what ways are they accountable? Um, those basic questions of politics seem to me to be more important rather than, you know, the um, how far uh, technological structure would imprint a future social, hypothetical kind of socialist society. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but isn't that to a little bit evasive, Phil, because in, in you know, to take the example of the debate that is set up in the book between Jasper Burns at, on one hand and, um, uh, sorry, remind me of who, who was kind of on the other side of that debate, uh, Alberto Toscano, um, about, you know, to what extent you can just seize the seize the tools or or they need to be reconfigured and or whether their ability to be reconfigured. And Jasper Burns proposes this much more, you know, romantic image that it all has to be kind of local. We need to set up local councils and not try to seize the kind of big AI global infrastructure. Um, so, uh, I you know, that is the political question. It obviously is something that is tightly interlinked with technology and how it's understood but that is the political debate right so i don't think it's an i don't think it's an evasion and i think for you to say oh it's it, the, let's remember the political question no that that kind of mischaracterizes what is what is at stake and what's going on there i don't have a particular position on it my my i would lean more towards the reconfiguration possibility that the the tools can be seized not all of them because a lot of them are you know like a like a hammer that sylvester the cat in a looney tunes cartoon uses to bash the mouse over the head you know what what good is this massive mallet to to this mouse um if he takes it over the, its whole purpose is to bash the mouse over the head so there's certain you know obviously surveillance technologies and various other forms of social control which are or, or even you know the kind of um some of the logistics networks which um are only make sense premised on the kind of production of commodities. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's complicated basically, but I, I do think that, sure. that debate there is is a political one. I'm not sure, you know, like the surveillance. You know, a lot of that is, um, you know, a lot of that. I think you know you could make a, a good good case for it that it's very effective. A lot of it is very effective technology for helping you identify more quickly and efficiently what you want 
you know so when amazon or google kind of tracks um you know the websites i visit the purchases that i make and what have you um and it collects that data and it can use it to refine what is made available to me you know that sounds you know that sounds to me like it's effect- what make effective what makes it creepy is the fact that i have no control over it or very limited and remote and heavily mediated control over it whereas you know if uh, if i lived in a society that was um uh, organized with more worker power and i had you know equally kind of more controlled direct control over conditions of the conditions of my labor and everybody else's then you know that technology would be less creepy by default mm, but aren't you being uh, you know kind of an arco syndicalist yourself because i mean what you're proposing there is a economic democracy within consumer capitalism right and the whole the whole no, point think, of it I mean, is that the, no, the amazon no, no. amazon recommendation systems is all about getting you to buy more stuff and there to would be without buying into any sort of degrowth notions or anti-consumerism or whatever there would be a reconfiguration of what you know of desire effectively that wouldn't be turned towards necessarily you know consumer goods right i think um, i'm not so, i don't think i I'm, I'm not making a syndicalist point. I'm making a point about centralized, you know, you need centralized control um, that integrated everyone effectively. And so I would, you know, your, your consume the consumer would feel, um, you know, less, uh, less manipulated because the processes through which, um, you know, assassinated in their own kind of environment um, place of work and having greater political control, they would feel less, um, you know, that they were not menaced no, by these hostile I, remote I, I, I corporations. You, but, and that's not the, an anarcho-syndicalist no, thing, because the, I'm not saying about how people working for Google would feel, but how consumers who use, you know, the surveillance algorithms would feel less um, skeptical and wary in, you know, ideally speaking, at least. No, I, I get you. But just to clarify, I don't want to go too much on this road, but just to clarify what I meant is that, you know, that presupposes a world still of uh, Amazon and Google and whatever competing against one another. It's just that they are worker owned and controlled and there's some central coordination, but that they're still producing the same maybe, commodities maybe. and they're still driven uh, towards commodity production. I think that. All right. Then... I mean, I take I take your point. You know, there's presuppositions built into the position I articulated. Um, you know, I accept that. And I guess that's a whole nother, you know, much more complicated debate about um, what the nature of a transitional society would look like. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's more than uh, Amazon plus worker power. But to move on to one of the things that I found a little more difficult in the book, perhaps, um, was the focus that they have on they talk about ai capital and at many points in the book just capital um rather than capitalist so this you know not completely um um never before seen approach that some marxist theory does have which is you know focusing on on the role the historic kind of agency of capital um rather than capitalists so they when they talk about agi so artificial general intelligence, they conclude that capital is already an automatic subject, but with AGI, it would also become autonomous from labor, from the labor of humans and therefore humanity. Capitalism could continue, but with with inhuman general intelligence representing both sides of the struggle between capital and labor, one side accumulating wealth, while the other continues to work for a wage, whatever form it may take, in machinic misery. So I guess my sort of unease with this is that 
it does seem to impute capital um, as a kind of set of tools, if you will, um, agency and maybe even consciousness, or maybe that's taking it too far and being unfair, but it does seem to do this like prior to um, AI, which is conscious. I mean, am I reading too much into this? And are they have they got it wrong about how class and technology um, yeah, I mean, I work? Think no, much, that the, I think the line about it. it being an automatic subject. I mean, that is you know that's simply taken directly from Marx's account of capital um, in Volume One. So, I mean, that I think you know that in as much as Marx is um, correct in that you know they're not they're not adding anything to that. Um, I think when they go with the AGI, the AGI idea is something which would go beyond it and it would become autonomous from the labor of humans. You know, that is the kind of the dystopian fantasy. Um, and that if that did happen, uh, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't actually meaningfully be capital at all. It wouldn't be meaningfully capitalism because the whole point of Marx's analysis is the interdependence of wage labor and capital, variable capital and um Constant, constant capital, capital. <laughs> shit <laughs> yeah i thought you had cut out for a second i was like i'm not gonna i thought yeah. you cut out as well my, my yeah. brain my brain cut out my brain cut out for a second um yes yeah, so you don't get that with artificial capital. intelligence it's it's right there the whole library of human not. knowledge is there at its fingertips yeah metaphorically indeed anyway. yeah so but yeah so i mean i don't you know i think there is you know they kind of give um they uh you know they let loose the kind of the dystopian idea there missing the point that if that were to take place it wouldn't be you know it's not really capital um and again i think this is part of marx's critical critical dimension of of, uh, or critical critique of capital is the fact that it keeps on recreating the need for or the need for labor in this form i mean i guess but to to be very much to the point of this whole you know, section, um, not section of this of, of this episode, but of the whole thing that we're discussing here is, you know, we're discussing effectively some form of post bad post capitalism, right? That's the, what the techno feudal argument, techno feudal thesis is, um, that we are moving beyond capitalism, but to something worse. Um, th- that seems a more plausible account, I think, or um, if not plausible account, um, one which is more analytically solid. Um, to argue that we're moving to this form of post-capitalism where there still is um, not capital because capital is this relation which involves humans, but effectively this sort of, um, yeah, this sort of very high-tech world in which humans are kind of increasingly written out of it, written out of its functioning. That, I think, at least to me, sounds more plausible than the the techno-feudal argument because I... I don't see I don't see the an imminent return to feudalism. Not that this case here with artificial general intelligence is particularly imminent either, because I, it's quite a ways off, if at all, right? Um, but I, anyway, I wanted to maybe throw this question back to at us um, whether you know whether that you might not call it capitalism, but is that the is that the bad post capitalism that is coming to us? Hmm. Well, there's a Mackenzie Walk book, Capital is Dead, um, but capital was always dead. It's dead, dead labor. But, how, you know, it, is there something worse now? Can you have a kind of a post-capitalist um, thing from a Marxist perspective that isn't socialism or communism? And I, I guess my maybe I'm being too crude about it, but that idea that capital is an automatic subject, my understanding is that it's an automatic subject because 
it is made automatic by the class interests of the capitalists who act in the interests of their of their class not because it it removes the need for capitalists as individual human beings to act right so there is still a human subject there you can't i don't think you can no, but in the, no, it's the other way the around. Presentation of capital, yeah, in the presentation of capital, it's very clear that capital is simply the character. Capitalists are the character mask of capital. Um, it doesn't. It operates through them, but they're. Um, it's not as if they have, as if it's uh, necessarily dependent on their independent agency. Yeah, the, and their mm. interests and their interests aren't foundational. You know, class their class yes, interest is right. a product of competition, um, not the other way around. That you know they don't have didn't interest. You, of... Didn't you attend? Didn't you attend a capital reading group, George, where you covered this very basic point when you were a PhD student at Nuffield? Did they not teach you this in the Nuffield well, two, course two, on capital? Two two things on this. Firstly, I, I you know reserve the right to be a a heterodox reader and not just kind of uh, narrow-mindedly parroting back what I, I may so have heard from others. So just basically ignore, ignore what the text actually says. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just be very postmodern, George, very postmodern. <laughs> and secondly, I've, you know, it's quite possible that I have just forgotten this, um, but we've had some of these mar marxological disagreements before where it's been two versus one. And then I've I, in my own mind, at least, been um, vindicated and later <laughs> revealed. Again, be, very postmodern. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's not postmodern, isn't that? Just kind of sociopathic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, needless to say, I had the last laughism. Um, but just to kind of to go a bit more into the political stakes of of this. Um, again, you know, I might be missing something. I might have a um, um, a very sort of pedestrian or or, or thick headed. Uh, reading of the first form of capital but i found it hard to understand their conclusion and they they do say this and so quote the 20th century de um, demonstrated the only force that can kill capital is capital itself the proletariat is sensu stricto just the grave digger is this right i mean this i think is well, a, the logical the... conclusion of this you know the more that you inflate ai capital as an independent actor the more you're saying that this is the only thing that can create history right you're you're kind of taking away the agency of all the the class struggle well, dynamic of finish off capital, the quote yeah, finish, off, be, finish off the quote be. because it's important because i i, I okay. don't think it's making it a, a, an abstract point it's a, a historical point so the, the quotation continues in 1917 in russia and in 1949 in china revolution arose from intercapitalist war end quote so i think i mean it, it's i mean it's the basis it's the very basis of um of the possibility of uh, capital capitalism being uh, overturned is the fact that capital subverts itself. So, you know, to that extent, I think it's entirely accurate. If they, if it wasn't the fact that capital um, annihilated its own conditions, then there'd be no possibility of supplanting it. So I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything, you know, logically speaking, I don't think there's anything wrong with the statement and I think indeed the um you know the examples of uh, of 20th century revolutions as a result of intercapitalist war I think is a good example of um of the logic of the point as well. Yeah, I was getting at that latter point which is just historically that is that it has been capital that has killed itself um in the in the 20th century in those moments um because there hasn't been social revolution I think outside of uh of those sorts of conditions, right? 
But isn't this the whole point, though, that the condition, like the contradictions of capital accumulation lead to the conditions in which the proletariat can exercise agency? It's not the, you know, it doesn't do the job itself, right? They they arose from, uh, resulted after intercapitalist war, but the intercapitalist war wasn't sufficient. It wasn't, I mean, may, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if, if you guys think that, you know, history is determined no, by whether level. capitalism like self explodes. Uh, no, or, but it's not, not self. It's not. No, no, no. But it's not. It's not making the point about economic. It's not the catastrophist point about economic collapse being the um, being the own. You know the how how capitalism transforms into a different society. It's making a logical point at a higher level of abstraction. Which is only that um, the fact that capital undermines its own conditions of reproduction is the logical basis on which it can be supplanted. That's not to deny that it requires agency, and indeed that you know, um, I mean, the very fact you know that uh, the labor, the wage labor of the proletariat is incorporated into the functioning, you know, into the circuit and the functioning of capital itself is part of that process. So. The two things aren't distinct. It's at a higher level of abstraction, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, unless you hold that Marxism is just a pure theory of will and of subjectivity, and it's we do revolution when we want it enough, which, you know, isn't the case. That's a bit like um, bad football <clears throat> punditry. Pundit, exactly. Yeah. Who wanted it everything. more? Yeah. Who the the it? proletariat wanted it more, and that's why they got revolution in 1917. And now they don't want it yeah. enough, you know. The ball was hanging in the area. They just wanted it more. Um, well, we can. I'm sure we can return to this. I'm not sure that the two of you convinced me um, for what it's worth, which might not be all that much. Um, but I think there is a a kind of probably. I think this is probably related. And so to, I guess, move on to this kind of maybe final <clears throat> kind of bigger theoretical question. Um, they de they specifically. Um, in the conclusion, um, note that their argument isn't a defense of classical humanism, human exceptionalism and species sovereignty. And instead, they conclude that communism, too, should indeed must be inhuman. So this is kind of a, <clears throat> an interesting way to put it. Um, and so they note that um, AI modes of production have their own anthropogenesis, thus producing different kinds of human and that the human that possibly emerges from the struggle against AI capital will be different from the human that went into it. So, you know, this idea that, <clears throat> you know, that human nature is no fixed abstraction present in each individual. It's the ensemble of so social relations. It's produced by a specific sort of society. And they see two, <clears throat> two paths, basically, out of our current situation. The first is a kind of transhuman communism. So this idea that the human in a communist society may reappropriate transhumanism and kind of technologically rework itself. And so a nascent communist society could either choose or be forced by ecological collapse, perhaps, or the aftermath of war. This is a quote to radically modify the physical human, uh, physical form of the human, including its cognitive apparatus, metabolic system and body. So that's the first first idea, transhuman communism. The other is eco-socialism. So the alternative form of communist inhumanism is ecological. To struggle for human autonomy from capital is also to struggle for recognition of the ecological and human enmeshments and imbrication that capital obscures and obliterates. The other um, kind of possibility is capital dominated, like inhuman capital dominating inhuman labor. 
forever. So two different sorts of inhuman communism. Um, what did the two of you make of this, these inhumanisms? I know this was the weakest, most kind of the, you know, least convincing. And this kind of the way in which it's formulated by, you know, the idea of, oh, my, you know, classical humanism and species sovereignty. Oh, my God, you know, God forbid that we have any of that human exceptionalism. You know, what a terrible crime. Um, I mean, this is it's I suppose it's striking that even it seems to me, you know, with them, with a very um, with a fairly, you know, sure grasp of a sophisticated classical um, Marxist political economy, they still let some of these arguments slip from their hands by indulging this kind of deep green wokery at different points. So, I mean, look, I mean, in, in as much as, um, you know, as they concede themselves um, and consistent with kind of even classical social theory preceding Marx, let alone Marx himself, that um, part of the nature of humanity is its own self-transformation through its agency. And to that degree, um, you know, transhumanism is kind of, um, you know, is kind of an ideological um, echo of that, and it can be folded into it, in which case all of this stuff about inhumanism and transhumanism becomes redundant because it's folded into a very, um, you know, very uh, basic understanding inherited from Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment social theory. Insofar as they try to go beyond it, then it seems to me it's, um, in fact, you know, uh, in re replicating the very thing that they've criticized, which is that what they're talking about in this kind of idea that we need a communism, a kind of an inhuman communism, which is integrated, plugged into these, um, you know, superhuman kind of systems that are functioning throughout the cosmos and the planet and the ecosystems and all of this. It is, in fact, that kind of um, bad AI, that kind of dystopian AI vision of a cybernetic future in which humanity is entirely kind of obliterated or its independence and uh, separateness is just kind of bleached out. And you have this um, homeostatic system that functions independently of humanity. Mm. And that kind of vision is in fact just, you know, that is the AI vision. So what they think they're dressing up is kind of this, um, you know, inhuman communism is something which is better than the communism of the 20th century is, I think, just, in fact, a garbled, the garbled expression of the AI capitalism that they're criticizing. I'm not sure I read it like that. I mean, I I had it more as a sort of techno techno Buddhism <laughs> um, of, of this sort of, um, yeah. you know, loss of. But isn't of, that of, just a, that's again, that's Silicon Valley ideology, right? Techno Buddhism. I think they're different things. But anyway, I mean, I, I, I the, the, the initial point that you started off with, Phil, I, I entirely agree with. I think that to the extent that you want to call it this transhuman communism, I think is kind of inherent in the communist or certainly a Marxian communist idea from the start. And as you say, kind of potentially even kind of predates that in social, uh, you know, kind of Marxism and social theory. Um, I think that was well put um, that, you know, a new mode of production would uh, itself change humanity and that we might seek to alter ourselves um, by our biological bodies and minds even um, in a conscious liberatory way in a in a truly free society i don't have any problem with that but i did they did also lose me on the kind of ecological points because it didn't seem to be saying we're going to use all this technology that we have to um 
create to, to basically have true human mastery. So, you know, taking climate change as a as a case where you have an incomplete human mastery, where we're able to um, create this whole world and civilization for ourselves, but are unable to deal with the negative feedbacks of that. Um, a, you know, true human mastery would be able to live in quote unquote harmony with nature. And I put big scare quotes on that, um, it, you know, in, in such a way that we have um, are better able to control the the kind of natural world and perhaps leave parts wild if we want and so on. I don't want to get into this whole argument, but would they then go a step beyond that, which seems completely unnecessary and completely um, not necessarily even in keeping or is not a, a logical extension of their earlier argument towards this um you know equality of species and all living and not e and non-living things which it's like it's again it's this weird buddhist step which just seems to be like a personal preference of mm -hmm. the authors rather than anything uh, being a, without in any way being a logical conclusion to what they've argued in throughout the rest of the book yeah i think there was a bit of a shift of of gears i mean personally i think the, the ideas of trans individuality the idea that under communism you realize the, the essential truth that are like um that what makes us human is not is not limited to us and in our own individuality strictly separated from everybody else i think that's a you know that's an idea that i can get behind but it does seem to me that they are that the the, the basic kind of conclusion is that the cost of of communism is our humanity i mean you don't want to put it into like grandiose terms but it does it does seem to be a kind of that's tacked on almost because of yeah because of these kind of possibly deep green um uh starting points or preferences that that the authors do have and this kind of consequent kind of devaluing of of, of the human but i mean the i guess to, just to kind of wrap it up though and to to get to come back to this idea of um not this kind of uh you know will tech save us or will it doom us questions i think we've we've covered that quite a bit but to link it specifically to the to the title or the, the subject of this uh third part of the reading club um is this ai vision a support for the techno feudalist thesis or not or does it undermine it yeah i i, I think it's um i mean maybe I, I sort of um answered that already in advance that um kind of neither the the vision of uh, of inhuman capital um and again you know with the proviso that that's probably the wrong way to term it because it's not capital anymore but in any in any case like this fully autonomous dehumanized dehuman not dehumanized but inhuman um system um based on the production of co commodities um but without exploitation of human labor um is the bad post-capitalism. And again, just to repeat myself, the neo-feudal thesis is nothing other than, you know, at least that it's at least the the kind of strong argument for it. The weak argument for neo-feudalism is really just slapping on a sexy label onto um capitalist stagnation. The people who make the more thoroughgoing arguments around it, around something moving to some sort of po bad post-capitalism, um, then okay, but I I don't I find it less um, a less strong, a less believable case than this argument for an inhuman uh, capitalism, although it might be take two, three hundred years to actually emerge. Phil, any any final thoughts? No, I mean I tend to agree with Alex on that one. So just to uh, don't sound surprised. Yeah, I mean we don't want too much. It is kind of surprising. 
Yeah, I mean, every, you know, every what a stop a stopped clock uh, it tells at the right time twice a uh, twice a day. So you know, Alex is going to get going to knock one out of the park every once in a while. You must. Um, must assume. Sorry, that sounded Thank really... Thank you, very kind. He'll nudge it out of the park occasionally. That's right. Um, but no, just uh, one final thing that I think is, is worth saying about this book is that it does have a very good table on uh, page 51, and, and listeners will know how fond of a table um, I am. I think anybody who writes a book, you should have at least one table because it's a good way to summarise things. Some of us um, think in, 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 in that way. Um, in straight but no, lines. I, yeah i mean categories none of this backwards forwards dialectical uh, nonsense but um yeah so alex do you want to uh, tee us up for the final reading club of the year yes in, uh, so, in december so this has been a lot of of capital of autonomously moving parts and things and abstractions and we're going to be talking about uh humans and humans laboring or maybe not laboring as it happens in the final one of uh of the techno feudalism section of the 2022 reading club um we're going to be discussing works by hui braga a brazilian theorist on uh, precarity as well as on uh, as well as by guy standing who uh kind of tread similar ground um so that will be um we're going to confirm the date to that because it'll be running into the sort of end of year uh christmas period so we're going to confirm when exactly that'll be recorded but again do send us in questions and also answer uh answer <laughs> send us answers not just questions god damn it um help us out here um but yeah no do do comment on this episode um what you thought of it um some of you might work in ai or kind of related fields and might have more insight into um the more technical side of things that we might have glossed over so please do uh let us know or if you've disagreed with our interpretation um let us know um but no bots please okay catch you next time bye bye